welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Nanu, nanu. That means hello and goodbye in Orkin. This is Dude. It's the Album Nerds Podcast. I got Andy and Don with me. How you guys doing today? Nanu, nanu to you. Uh, yes, aloha to you, my friend. I feel like Dude's been... He's been taken over by aliens or something. I think last episode you said greetings, <laughs> Earthlings. So right. no, I'm a little worried. Some robot language. <laughs> it did sort of send me down a path. I started thinking about Mork. From I'll be Mork. worried when you start choosing techno records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you then you know that uh, I've got a probe <laughs> up me bum. He's clearly being controlled. <laughs> yes. yes. All right, so this is a podcast for album lovers, music lovers, and bored people. So I, if you're any of those things, welcome. Uh, today we're going to be talking about three albums. We're going to be answering a question. We're going to be spinning the wheel of musical destiny at the end of the show to find out what kind of albums we'll be talking about next. But this week, it's all about the Rubin. Rick Rubin. That's what I'm talking about! All right, Rick Rubin, born Frederick J. Rubin uh, in Long Beach, New York in 1963, is an American record producer, uh, also the co-founder of Def Jam Recordings, uh, American Recordings. Uh, in, he was also uh, the co-president of Columbia Records. Uh, he's been a you know key figure in a, in a lot of genres, including hip-hop, metal, uh, alternative rock, country, and pop. And he's worked with artists such as Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, Slayer, Tom Petty, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Johnny Cash. Uh, so today, each of us will present a, a record produced by Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin definitely brings all the things you said to mind, Don. Those are the kind of, I think, the artists that most people think about when you hear his name. Uh, the Def Jam record label being started out of his dorm room, and then he partners with Russell Simmons. And it's a pretty epic story when it comes to someone being so famous for producing records, as famous as the artists that perform them. So coming into this, I think, you know, he's kind of a larger than life character um, and part of the American tapestry. Yeah. I mean, he's like one of the few producers that I can picture. And maybe that's because he has kind of an iconic look or I've seen him on a lot of interview shows and documentaries. I feel like he's always got his, his pulse on what's going on or at least what was going on. I don't know. He seems pretty relevant nowadays, I guess. He's still still doing his thing. Yeah, it's like he has a few phases of his career or a few things he's known for. So you have, I mean, you know, he might be as as responsible as anyone for the, you know, the popularization of, of hip hop uh, in, in the 80s um, and also fusing, you know, rock and ro- rock with, with hip hop, but also, you know, I think advancing metal and then kind of helping artists like Johnny Cash kind of revitalize their, their careers. Well, not kind of revitalize that, that part of country music. Yeah. Because when in the '90s, when when the Cash album came out, I think country music was mostly like Garth Brooks and Brooks and Dunn, and you know, kind of achy breaky heart type stuff. So I think that Johnny Cash coming back, Outlaw Country came back with him, and it's and it's still strong, uh, going strong now, thanks to producers like Dave Cobb. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He almost has like this sort of mythical quality to him where he seems like he's some sort of like musical shaman where he can like pull out these different qualities of artists just by saying like something seemingly genius but simple you know i'd be like 
you know, I hear him tell the story about System of a Down all the time where he's like, oh, Serge, go pick this book off the shelf and pick a random phrase from it and it'll become like the most popular anthem in rock music in the last 20 years or something like that. And it's just, he's got some way, some way about him. He's tapped into something that works, you know. Uh, my impression of him is that he's um, not like a taskmaster and he's not somebody that, that comes in and uh, like I picture a Phil Spector, you know, just being in control and telling everybody what to do, at least in those in those early days. And I think Rick Rubin is somebody that, you know, is just there to kind of inspire the artists or to to help them their, find their voices and capturing that. I actually I heard uh, an interview with I think it was one of the, the heartbreakers you know, from Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. And they were kind of contrasting what it was like working with Jeff Lynn and then Rick Rubin. And Jeff Lynn was very like structured and would um, you know re-record things several times. He was a bit of a perfectionist, whereas Rick Rubin, I think, was somebody that would kind of let things breathe and leave things kind of mm. raw. Yeah, raw. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to mention any records that we considered, or should we just keep, move on? I feel like we can move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the list is seemingly endless of Rick Rubin projects, whether he produced or executive produced. So I, we encourage people to go out and look at that list and see what surprises you find. But before you do that, we're going to talk about our three picks of interesting Rick Rubin albums. You choo-choo choose me? Who are you? We uh, try to be the Mars Volta. And who's in the Mars Volta? Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Cedric. Hello, Cedric. <laughs> Hello. And who do you have beside you, Cedric? I have a person named Omar Rodriguez. Hello, Omar. Hi. Welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. <laughs> All right, I'm going to kick things off with the aforementioned the Mars Volta and their 2003 album, De Laust in the Comatorium. Let us play the opening single here. This is a little bit of an erratic ESP. Yeah, these song titles are odd. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like like they made up all these words. <laughs> I know. Autocorrect hates this album. <laughs> all right. So De Laust is the debut studio album for the six-piece from El Paso, Texas. It's primarily made up of Omar and Cedric that we heard in the intro there. They were in a band called At The Drive-In in the late 90s, early 2000s. More of a punk rock variation on the sound. A couple of quick notes about this record in particular. Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers plays bass on this record, as suggested by Mr. Rubin. And it is a bit of a concept record. It tells a loosely a story of kind of drug overdose, um, which kind of mirrors up with a couple of stories that are uh, the band was related or involved with at the time. Um, but yeah, my three words for this record are wild Prague Martians. It sounds a little bit foreign to me. This whole sound is, it was pretty new. It's kind of amalgamation of a lot of different sounds that I love. I hear a lot of like Led Zeppelin, Rush. There's a lot of like 70s jazz in this record as well. But mixing them all together, I think kind of did create something new and unique to this time period and, and this band. And it's pretty, it's pretty wild, man. Like it's, in terms of sonically, it's all over the place. Shifts a lot from like loud to soft, seemingly, you know, without much rhyme or reason. Um, and a lot, a lot happens over the 60 minute runtime. All right, why don't we play one more cut? This is from the middle of the record. This has got a lot of vowels in it. It's uh, <laughs> Iritarica. <laughs> 
Is that a Star Wars character? I, that's what I was thinking. Like, that's like, sounds like something Worf would say on Star Trek or something. <laughs> yeah, those are my favorite moments uh, on the record. Kind of that sort of Floydian, you know, there's a little... Oh, you know, of there it is. Um, so... <laughs> I, there were a lot of times on this record where I kind of like would tune out or, or drift off and then like moments like that would sort of bring me back. The uh, the three words I, I chose to describe the album uh, are appreciate the effort. You know, oh, I, this boy. is uh, I mean, it's such a big, I think, ambitious record. Like you said, they're they're fusing in a lot a lot of styles, you know, psychedelic, punk, some Latin rhythms going on in, in there, and you know there are moments like that that I that I love. But f- I don't know what it is. Um, you know, I want to love this record, and I don't know. It, it kept, it, I kept I kept getting lost in it, or or it kept losing me. I would say. I thought I thought this would be a thing for you. On yeah. listening to it, I mean, in that song in particular, one of the things I like about it is that's when you can really hear Flea. Oh yeah, that can, especially since it is so spacey and spacious, I kind of feel lost in it too. And being able to grab onto something I recognize and I'm comfortable with, like Flea's bass, yeah. <laughs> helps <laughs> ground me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I I love moments of the record. I I think overall, I I love the concept. Part of it. And I, I think it's just a lot of bias I have. I still, I kind of just hate that period of, of music, like that late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know, the, the way that they sing. Um, Up in your mind, man. Yeah, that's, I, I have tried, I don't know, um, <laughs> like the exoskeleton, like that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know, like when Dio does it, I like it. But for some reason, when these guys from the late 90s and early 2000s sing like that, yeah. I, uh, that's so funny, man. It's coming from a different place. There's something like the Dio thing is more of a, a triumphant warrior, and this is more of a trampled peasant. Mm, oh, there you gosh. go. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a more generational thing, man. Like I think it might be. I can't stomach <laughs> yes. the eighties, you know, <laughs> know, Rob Halford. Like, oh like that just curls on my spine yeah Yeah, see i could listen to that all day where's this like i i'm all for this i this is like led zeppelin to me like i can get down with that level i don't know if it it, like that whatever you call that new punk or like the blink 182 stuff where they sing sort of in that juvenile way Uh, i just never got into that yeah are you equating this to blink 182 see yeah because i i have to agree with andy here there's a there's a difference there because blink 182 not only does sort of a juvenile voice but then it's also like my mom is mean you know that's not happening the mars volta is certainly a artistic i would i agree with that plateau uh i agree above This record for me, being an album nerd and loving the album format like this, I think it really is suited for that start to finish listen. And the story is loose at best, but I love his lyrics and just how kind of grotesque and obtuse and bizarre they are. He comes up with a lot of words that I don't know that they are words. <laughs> or at least they're not English based. I don't, I don't know. No, there are, there are words made to fit. Yeah. Yes. More about sound than 
necessarily that are grammatical importance. But I love that shit and just the the hugeness of the sound and all the little details that are in there and everything sounds very pristine and very well recorded and it sounds equally as good on headphones as it does on speakers. I'd imagine that's Rick is involved with that. Um, I know this album was co-produced with uh, Omar Rodriguez as well. But yeah, why don't we play one more cut? This is also from the middle of the record. Much easier title, Drug Ship of Lanterns. That's my favorite feel when they're doing all that jazz transition stuff. It's cool. There's a lot to to like here, but it's just really big. Uh, The three words I used to describe the album, creative, virtuosity, adrift. I mean, it is creative. There's really good playing. There's really good uh, arrangements, but I kind of got lost in the whole thing. I mean, like that that song in particular, track five, the character Serpin, Kirpin. Serpin Tax. Just do Jason or something. <laughs> Awakens from a dream within a dream to find himself stapled to the deck of a abandoned barge afloat in the middle of the open ocean. The barge smashes against shipwrecks, blah, blah, blah. So, but that, I don't, like, I get that this guy's in a in a coma dream just because it's Jason throughout the songs. Uh, doesn't mean that they feel tied together in any way to me. But, uh, but I love that that song does sound like a chaotic ocean, you know? Like, I, I like what they were doing, but I just feel like it was uh, maybe just too heady for me. I don't know. I'm a simple man. Just a little too much for this brain to... <laughs> calculate when listening to a record headphones help this is a headphone album it definitely works well on headphones it probably helps that i've been listening to this for like 20 some years well almost 20 years exactly yeah i don't know i love this record i've, I've always put this among their best and at the time this came out this felt pretty i say revolutionary but it definitely felt very fresh and exciting so yeah i, I guess i'm just gonna take my own grave here for a second and nominate this for the in-house oh but, my uh, god Feeling's gonna need a lot of help. <laughs> well, it's tough for me. I mean, because I recognize how big of an album it is and how ambitious it is. And, you know, when I think about music in this time period, I, I think it probably stands out, you know, as a, as a great work. I feel like maybe eventually I'll love this record, but I'm not there yet. So I'm going to vote no for now. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> but I think I Still could my change heart. my mind in a month or something. <laughs> you may not have that chance because I say no also. Oh. oh my gosh. Now, as much as I, as I appreciate like A for effort, but for me, they just like what they're trying to do. I don't, I think they missed the mark, at least with this album. What would you say? What was the mark? Well, first of all, I think they, they succeeded in giving tribute to their friend that this was based on that it had uh, had an overdose i believe but nothing in it it doesn't communicate that at all just because in name and in description it does like i didn't feel that i didn't feel connected to the loss i didn't feel any emotion and i think they missed the emotion trying so hard to make so many cool sounds which they did great at but yeah i didn't feel any i didn't feel the pain i'm feeling some pain right now you know yeah, I know. <laughs> you got shot down, sucker. <laughs> All right. So I don't think it's ever happened before, but you guys both voted now. I voted yes, obviously. So I think in that scenario, there's no need for a user or user <laughs> listener uh, vote, right? Right. 
Well, that's not that's not exactly fair. No, I think that, yeah. I mean that's the rules. I mean, you could renominate it. Yes, you could renominate it. it oh, <laughs> how about that? How about like at the, in our end of the year show, we have Einhoff Redux, where we anything <laughs> if we got stuff shot down, we bring it back and see if uh, I like if, it. Okay, if minds and hearts have changed. All right, yeah, let's do that. End of end of twenty twenty three. We'll revisit the Volta. All right, so <laughs> you know they're not Einhoff material. Uh, I do think it's an interesting record. The Mars Volta deloused in the comatorium. Sorry, Andy. I feel bad. <laughs> oh, no, it's all right. I lost her into that one. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Changing the subject from breaking Andy's heart, it's time to ask ourselves a question. Which artist is due for a late career resurrection? Yeah, this is kind of a tough one, man. There's been so many of these, I feel like, that have happened. <laughs> I've had to like double check to make sure they actually haven't put out an album recently. Um, but for me, the one I've always been really curious to hear, like, what is the next record from is Lauren Hill. Hmm. You guys remember her in, like, I think it was the late 90s, early 2000s, that period that Don hates so much. One she, time, one time. Yes, in the Fugees. And she put out a great Grammy-winning album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which I really enjoyed a lot. And then she just really went silent. She's done a few appearances, guest appearances on albums, performances and stuff, but hasn't really filed right. it up with a true project in, you know, like 20-plus years. I think she just is done with the business. I don't think she cares. So weird. I, yeah, I mean, it seems to be, but I would love for her to get some sort of spark and just put that magnificent brain back to back to work, producing some good hip hop. Because we really need a, a strong female voice in hip hop. I think so. That'd be my pick. How about you, Don? Well, I'm gonna. I, I guess I'm not quite answering the the question the, the way it was asked, but you're the one that asked I it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say Pac Man. Um, he's not an artist, but like the, the character Pac-Man, I mean, he's had many different reintroductions, you know, like you've had like Pac-Mania and Pac-Man World and stuff like that. But he's not as iconic a character as like Mario. And I'd like to see right. Pac-Man sort of reach that status because I, I don't know. I just, okay. I just, I like him. You got to give him a mustache maybe or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I did. And I did have Pac-Man cereal. Oh, yeah. uh, as a child so he, he you know he, he he got the cereal box so you know <laughs> something maybe maybe he can come back pac-man wow don i would never <laughs> have guessed that in a million years you're gonna say pac-man <laughs> all right so uh which artist or figure is due for a yeah. late career resurrection <laughs> for me i'm going back to music john mellencamp john cougar mellencamp mm. johnny cougar R-O-C-K in the USA, Jack and Diane. Mm -hmm. Just those American epic anthems that he, the working man stuff that he was so good at in the in the mid '80s, early '80s, mid '80s. Now he's still recording. He's a he's a painter. He's active, but he, I don't think he's ever been as high in the American consciousness as like a Bruce Springsteen or, you know, even. Uh, Brian Adams, who's Canadian, I think gets <laughs> gets more screen time. <laughs> Although the country music industry does seem to recognize him, John you know John Mellencamp gets mentioned in a lot of country songs, or lyrics of his get mentioned in country songs. But I want to see a resurgence. I want he, his album that came out uh, in 2022 is very rustic and kind of sad and melancholy. 
I want to see, and that's called strictly a one-eyed Jack, really gravelly voiced. I I want to see the champion of the of the middle American, the the middle class hero come back, and I'd love that. I just love his music. So yeah, that'd be cool, man. Good one. Yeah, it's no Pac Man. All right. So <laughs> what about y'all? Which artist or figure is due for a late career resurrection? The poet. <laughs> Okay, so um, <laughs> my pick for uh, a Rick Rubin produced album is from Donovan. This is an album called Sutra. Uh, it was released in October 1996. Let's hear the, actually, the final cut on the album. Uh, this is called Universe Am I. I read Hey, Donovan. Cat Stevens called. He wants his voice back. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does sound like Cat Stevens on this record. Okay, so Sutra is the the nineteenth studio album by Scottish singer songwriter Donovan, born Don Phillips Leitch in Glasgow uh, in nineteen forty six. I mean, Donovan was a huge success in the in the mid to late nineteen sixties, kind of coming out of the the British uh, folk movement. But he had hits like Catch the Wind, Sunshine, Superman, Mellow Yellow, and uh, Hurdy Gurdy Man. And, you know, he kind of went away, uh, as artists uh, often do. But Rick Rubin, after having success producing Johnny Cash, you know, wanted to do it uh, with, with another legacy act. And so, uh, I guess through Tom Petty, he, he contacted uh, Donovan. Uh, and they made uh, they made this record together. The three words I chose to describe the album are call it mellow gray instead of mellow yellow. It's mellow gray just because he's you know he's older um, and and maybe wiser. Uh, it's definitely a, a a mellow record. It's actually it's more a, a throwback to um, his early folk records, which were more Dylanish. Uh, in fact, I guess Rick Rubin told him to to kind of go back and listen to that stuff. So yeah, you know, just a a, a very mellow uh, folk record, but you know, kind of you know ma- mature. Let's uh, let's do another cut. This is uh, El Dorado. Down the valley of the shadow, ride boldly, ride the shade, read light. El Dorado. That was uh, the lyrics for that were actually a poem by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, published in April of 1849, which I, I thought that was really interesting choice. Right? I mean. Donovan could have done anything he wanted here with Rick Rubin. He could have written new songs like he did. He could have covered Nine Inch Nails songs or whatever. If he, you know, he could have done whatever, but he chose to be the poet and even reflect a poet. I loved Edgar Allan Poe when I was an English major in college for a while. So I really connected with that. I, I love the delivery. I love the story of it, where it's kind of you know traveling to try and that that fame fortune whatever it is trying to find that and you don't you know and i think that uh, i think he was recognizing that in this opportunity of making this album too you know is he is he chasing something or is he just creating the three words i used to describe it is don't call it a comeback that maybe that's what rick was after after the success of johnny cash but donovan doesn't seem interested in that as much as Having an opportunity, he hadn't had an album of new songs in a long time. I think having an opportunity to write and sing and create, I think he prepared like 100 songs or something for this. So I don't think it was about a comeback for him. I think it was about the muse, the poem, the art. 
Nice. Okay, well, let's uh, let's do a, a, another cut. This is High Your Love. It's a high, it's a high your love. All on the island, she danced, sleep off, forgetful. Yeah, I, I've come like full 180 on this record since I first started listening to it. Me too. <laughs> Too. When I first heard that song, I was like, oh my God, this is so, so not on my alley at all. <laughs> I know. But uh, I really come to like that. I, I, his little, um, I kept struggling to find the word here, but the way he says his phrasing of these terms, much like a poet, just the way you pronounce every single syllable. And then part of it is how it's recorded. Like he sounds like he's right next to your eardrums singing these songs. I think that works really well. So my three words are keep a clear brow, kind of stealing the, there's a song on here called the clear browed one, which I assume, and maybe Don, tell me if I'm wrong. What does that mean? I guess, or what, what would, what, how do you interpret that, that phrasing? I don't, I don't know if it's like a reference to being like highbrow or something, or I, I don't, I, I thought maybe it was like, don't sweat it, yeah. you know, cause a unclear brow is full of sweat, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was more like a like a pure like a purity kind of thing like untainted. Don't have any like stress what? marks or anything. That I don't makes know. sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't have the wrinkles in your forehead if if you're not. Oh, uh, that makes right. sense. Yeah. The forehead yeah. lines. Yeah. yeah. That's the poetry. That's what's cool about this. Which at first I was like, okay, if this was a comeback, he would have done a psychedelic sound type thing because mm-hmm. that's what people know him for. Yeah. And he didn't. And I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't Hurdy Gurdy Man Three. You know, but. <laughs> Yesterday, in particular, I was listening to it on headphones while I was undecorating the Christmas tree, and I was just like, "I get it now." <laughs> you yeah, know? So. Totally. yeah, it finally clicked into place for me about a, a few days ago as well. Um, even like so that that song there, "High Your Love," the way he says it, it almost sounds like higher love. Like you, together, we have like some sort of achieve some sort of higher spiritual plane or something like that but that's all in the in the context of the song it really is written out as high your love it's i found that really interesting and they do set the songs are very simple but there's a lot of depth to them too i think especially in the meaning yeah so is it a you know an a plus record all the way through probably not there's definitely some low points but i felt like the high points were so great at least for me um and the melodies were strong enough to hold it together I thought this was, was pretty enjoyable. I was kind of shocked that I'm saying that now, but I, I really did come to like it. So yeah, I was um, I was surprised to to learn that the that the critics didn't really seem to care for it much. It seems to me like this is probably I not I don't want to say it's the best Donovan can do, but I think I like this uh, you know this version of him, and I, I think I don't know he seems inspired. I, I think it's a it's a really good record. I mean, it, it's probably not the best record that that Rick Rubin ever did, but it's really cool. And it was a you know a cool way to kind of get reacquainted with with an artist that I, I tend to for, forget about. Like when yeah. I I mean Donovan, I mean it had huge records, but I don't know when we talk about the '60s, um, you know, I, I think we tend to you know ignore him. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I do think, uh, you know, if it didn't resurrect, you know, his commercial success, um, I think it kind of resurrected him as an artist because he has been recording fairly consistently since then. Okay. Well, that was Sutra by Donovan. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Are you a music fan? Join the discussion on the Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord. Tell us what you like, what you dislike, and suggest topics for the Wheel of Musical Destiny. Could it be? 
Yeah. So the Dark Lord is in the house. Oh, boy. I'm bringing Slayer to the table. The album Rain and Blood released October 7th, 1986. Rick Rubin's very first metal record that he was involved in producing. So why don't we jump into Raining Blood? I think Donovan co-wrote this. <laughs> such a here we go <laughs> we've, we've really <laughs> we've really uh traversed some different terrain here today haven't we yes, gentlemen indeed <laughs> oh so slayer or slayer as they're often called um by their fans was an american thrash metal band from huntington park california founded in 1981 by guitarist Kerry King and Jeff Hahnemann, drummer Dave Lombardo, and bassist vocalist Tom Aria. Kerry and Jeff did the majority of the songwriting here. The lyrical themes are all over the place throughout their whole discography, but uh, they cover things like serial killers, torture, genocide, organized crime, secret societies, the occult, terrorism, religion, anti-religion, fascism, racism, war, and they've uh, generated a lot of album bands. They've gotten themselves into a lot of hot water, and a lot of people hate them, and a lot of people love them. I'd never really dug in before. This album, Rain in Blood, kind of considered their biggest. It's their third, released by Def Jam Recordings. Rick Rubin liked what he heard, and he wanted to take them to the next level. He hadn't done metal before, but he took his hip-hop approach of focusing on every element. So you get good mic'd up versions of these instruments and the voice, and you hear how incredible they are as musicians. And it's, uh, you know, there are awesome moments in it. Um, it's a real thrasher. Three words I use to describe it are thrash, horror movie. The lyrical horror movie elements, the over-the-top stuff about Nazis and and uh, the devil and and even the song Rain and Blood where a guy from Purgatory is trying to take revenge on heaven and tear open the sky. I get I kind of got lost sometimes. I got removed from the music because the lyrics were a little cringy to me occasionally. A lot actually. And uh <laughs> hey, teach his own. But this band has been hugely influential. Without them I don't think we'd have death metal, which take it or leave it. Uh it's up to you, but they're huge, and their influence has been enormous. They've seeped into American culture, um, and so much so that their their songs have been taken, loved, reinterpreted, really reinterpreted. We're going to listen to a little bit of one of those that I think is just fascinating. In 2001, Tori Amos took Raining Blood and recorded her own version on her album, Strange Little Girls, so why don't we check it out now? Now that's from the exact same spot in the song. <laughs> um, and what uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this: what she said was in an interview was that upon she's like reimagining super male songs. So she stated upon first hearing the song, the imagery she thought of was this beautiful vulva raining blood over this male abusive force. You know, I know Slayer has has ingratiated itself. Uh, in thrash metal and in dark, you know the kind of metal that came from it by hearing someone take it and just turn it inside out. I, I love that. Did you say vulva, not Volvo? So. Yes. 
Although, Volvo. you know, she seems like she might be a Volvo driver. <laughs> All right, so uh, okay. let's keep moving forward, and we're going to do it piece by piece. Okay. Um, wow, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> Let me start with the good things, I guess. That won't take too long. No, uh, I 100% am with you on Dave Lombardo. I think he's a fantastic drummer among the best in metal then and now. Hands down. He's awesome. Love the dual guitar sounds. I think that works super well. It sounds great. Solos are freaking hard-hitting and fast and like the thrash elements and like that punk energy is here if this was an instrumental record i would just keep gushing over those elements for the remainder of the review but it is not and i think the focus their shtick i guess or their thing is this darkness and it is fucking brutal and nasty and ugly and like that song it just grosses me out to listen to it man it doesn't makes me feel gross as a human being which is yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. who would think about these things, let alone write them down and sing them for the next couple decades is kind of beyond me. Not just that, but captivate America's youth. I mean, when I was in high school, get on the bus, you know, pick up people and, and all, there were heavy metal kids and all, one of them would always be like, Slayer! Right. I mean, it was yeah. like... Look how look how dark I can get, you know. Uh, I think they really tapped yeah. into that. It's like the musical equivalent of those uh, Faces of Death videos. Do you remember those? Yeah. Yes. And Ugh. Andy, do you know what those are? No, describe that real quick. They were just like they were supposedly like real death scenes, you know. So it was it just was a documentary, yeah. but it was disgusting. Oh, I think it yeah. turned out most of it was staged anyway, but. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I I think what you're saying, Andy, is similar to what I felt where, like, I love the brutality of metal, of how it can be in thrash, and even the ugliness of life, but I, I would have wanted at least just one, just one song about real things in their lives, like a bad day, yeah, who they are. a breakup. Yeah, as people, not just, like, let's say really messed up stuff, you know? <laughs> like, it's just lyrically... I, I, I did struggle. I've never, I've listened to Slayer albums before in the background, but I've never dug in. I just can't get, I just can't get on that horse. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate its existence in terms of what it, how it was a piece, a big piece of metal and how it developed. But. All right. So, uh, speaking of ugliness, why don't we listen to a little bit of Angel of Death? Yeah, that's the uh, the opening cut, and that one is supposedly about the the Nazi physician. Is it Joseph Mengele? Mengele, I think. Who was doing you know awful human experiments at, at Auschwitz concentration camp? Yeah. So the um, the the three <laughs> words I, I chose to to describe the album, uh, I did uh, no melody required. So even even early Metallica. They still, you know, there's there's some melody kind of kind of thrown in, even like Megadeth records. You know, there's there's a little more, I guess, composition going on, or uh, you know, there, there's something else there. But I don't actually, I I kind of like this record for that reason, and I feel like of the three records we did, maybe this is the one that I, I think really says something about Rick Rubin. I think if I don't know who's another metal like Bob Rock or or somebody or. Um, 
who's the guy about well, Mutt Lang, you know, if they got Slayer in a studio, I, I feel like they'd be convincing them to, no, you got to slow it down here and let's throw in a little orchestration. Yeah. And I'd be saying, how about about your life? What'd you have for lunch today? Write a song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, Rick Rubin was just like, oh, you guys want to thrash? Then just, you know, just thrash, you know, just do what you want. If you want to sing about gore, just do it. And I think he just kind of let them run free with it. And that's what this is. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I think it's exactly what it's supposed to be, you know, just guys, you know, scaring you and singing about awful things. And, you know, they don't really slow down at, at all. Mm-mm. No, no. I, I try to equate it in my mind to like horror movies yeah. where just because the creator, like, I don't think Wes Craven necessarily is an evil man because he shows us evil, nasty stuff. Right. I, I, so I don't know. I, yeah, I just of the big four thrash. They'd be number four for me. It just, yeah, it doesn't do it for me the way that Metallica does or Anthrax with how fun they can be. Or I think the darkness of Megadeth, that's about as dark as I like to get. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know where I'd put them on the ranking of, of those four. I mean, I, I guess I just sort of like that they, I think they kind of have their niche, you know, like yes. they're they're well-defined. Like I know exactly what Slayer is now. Um, whereas like Metallica, I think is harder to classify. They're almost like the Beatles of the four, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. A little more ex- expansive sound. Yeah. Slayer probably had the biggest impact on the genre, on heavy metal and creating genres of darker black metal and things. I, I think in the world of metal music, they probably have a bigger influence than the other bands. You notice metal people pr- really pronounce the T. It's always metal. <laughs> no. That, so I, I my T was too soft. <laughs> I'll work on that for next time. I mean, next time. All right. So Rick Rubin, Yowza. What a ride. That was uh, Slayer, Rain in Blood. Go check it out if you don't want to sleep. <laughs> Rick Rubin, other than making me hungry for a Rubin sandwich, <laughs> I was really taken by the sheer number of projects he's been involved in, things I didn't even know he was involved in. The big stuff we know about Don Lister at the top of the show. So I just think it's very interesting, the role of a producer in in albums. And it's it, producers all have different styles. George Martin was very, very involved in composition with the Beatles. Rick Rubin is kind of a... I'm going to help you see the things that make you cool and let you do them. And that's kind of what I took away from listening to these albums. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that he's letting the band do their own thing and maybe just a little nudge here and there, or we'll set that mic up a little differently than maybe you guys had done originally. I think for me, I'm just really impressed by the variety of projects he takes on and that he sees music really as like a whole, like here's a full, full breadth of the landscape of what's happening and not... So many producers are known for like, I do country, I do hip hop, and that's stay in my lane, and that's what I know. He he definitely bucks that trend, and that's that's pretty cool. And I think that does speak to some sort of larger understanding of of just music or the artist the artistic process. 
Well, I th- you know, I think it's it's remarkable that we we kind of told the story of Rick Rubin without actually dealing with any of the records for which he's probably you know most famous. But I, I think we showed the the various sides of of his production work. I think he's just a big music fan because I think he you know early on he was in a punk band and so you know I'm sure he was uh, an aspiring musician himself. But I think maybe he figured out you know his role and how he can help others. Um, you know, create great works. Yeah, obviously a, a very influential figure in the last few decades of music um, without really having his face on any album covers. So it's pretty cool. And that's One to Grow. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. All right, boys and girls. It's time for everyone's favorite part of the program. We see what destiny has in store for us. Let's wheel the old wildbot out here and see what they have to say. Your musical destiny will take you back to the days when MTV actually played music videos. You will explore albums by artists featured on 120 Minutes. Ah, the MTV show, I assume. Or records that are two hours long, is that? oh god (laughs) yeah so 120 minutes was a uh mtv program for alternative bands and uh artists should be right in our wheelhouse one other quick announcement here you know the voting is final now for in excess's album kick which was was on the fence for, for for about a month and uh yes i'm proud to say unlike the mars volta in excess welcome <laughs> to the halls of the aim house congratulations voted in by the listening audience it was overwhelming actually not even close wow ah vindication <laughs> okay <laughs> All right, who else belongs in the Album Nerds Hall of Fame? Who's your favorite artist to be featured on MTV's 120 Minutes? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow Album Nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you for listening to the Album Nerds Podcast, where we will not be talking about two our albums next week see ya <laughs> see you next week thanks for listening everybody bye have a beautiful time have a beautiful time <laughs> you guys ever watch uh, American Dad like at the end there's a guy that, that goes bye have a beautiful time <laughs> <laughs>